Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hello and welcome to the Rachman Review. I'm Gideon Rachman, Chief Foreign Affairs Commentator of the Financial Times. In this week's edition, we're looking at the war in Ukraine and the risk of nuclear escalation. My guest is Professor Graham Allison of Harvard University. He wrote the classic study of the Cuba Missile Crisis, Essence of Decision. More recently, he's gained a lot of attention in Beijing and Washington with his book on US-China relations, which has the stark title, Destined for War. As you'll hear, he believes that Russia could indeed use nuclear weapons in Ukraine. But how high is the risk? In the past week, Sergei Lavrov, the Russian foreign minister, has claimed that the NATO alliance is now fighting a proxy war with Russia in Ukraine. He also said that there's a very serious risk that the conflict could turn nuclear. Russian Foreign Minister Sergei Lavrov with a chilling warning. The risk of nuclear war is a real one. Speaking to state-run media, Lavrov said, quote, the danger is serious, it is real, it cannot be underestimated. The Russians have a clear interest in trying to deter the West from supplying heavy weaponry to Ukraine. But in fact, America and its allies intend to step up weapons supplies, as the U.S. Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin made clear after a visit to Ukraine this week. They need uh, long-range fires. Uh, You've heard them uh, express a need for tanks. And we are uh, doing everything that we can to get them uh, the the types of support, the types of uh, artillery and munitions that will be effective in this stage of the fight. Many in the U.S. and Europe are inclined to dismiss Russia's talk of the use of nuclear weapons as a bluff. But Graham Allison believes the risk of nuclear escalation is real. I began our conversation by asking him why he believes that. I think if you try to put it in a single sentence, it is that if Putin is forced to choose between losing, on the one hand, in Ukraine, and escalating the level of destruction, there's every reason to believe he'll escalate the level of destruction. We know about him in his history. He had no compunction, whatever, killing massively in his own city, Grozny, leveling the entire city in order to, quote, win. In uh, Aleppo, in Syria, the commander that's now commanding the Donbass operation had no trouble, whatever, just killing people massively. Secondly, he has the physical capability to do this. So Iskander missiles with tactical nuclear warheads can hit any target 300 miles inside of Ukraine. So he can pick a city and hit it, and there it is. And if he were to do that, the world will say, this man seems like a madman and like a murderer, a mass murderer, maybe genocidal. I think we've already used all those words. (laughs) So, you know, what else can you call him than what he is and what he's shown himself to be? So I think the painful fact about Ukraine is that we have to hope to get to some resolution or some ceasefire or some place where it stops 
before we give him that option, because I think, unfortunately, in that option, there's no reason to believe he wouldn't conduct a nuclear strike. And if that were to happen, we will all be back into the world of thinking about the unthinkable in which there's no very good choices. If he were to conduct a nuclear strike, what is your best guess as to how the West would respond? Most Americans, and I think most Europeans, consigned... uh, nuclear weapons to the dustbin of history with the Soviet Union when it disappeared. And certainly for Western militaries, nuclear weapons are essentially no longer weapons of war. So we're accustomed to the taboo in which you just don't use nuclear weapons and can't even imagine it, except in retaliation for a nuclear strike. So the idea that it would have happened will all of a sudden just be, you know, scales will fall off people's eyes and they'll be terrified and And then you say, well, what are U.S. options? I've tried to help our team work through these. There are no good options. So maybe we should conduct a nuclear strike against what? Against some Russian city? Well, now we've got the war into Russia. And what would be the response to that? Maybe we really, really, really tighten the sanctions. I think that's what we've been trying to do, though there's more to do. Would Europeans be so shocked that they would cut off gas I don't think so. The scenario I envisage is by nightmares. He conducts a nuclear strike on a small city, maybe 20,000 people. And now he says to Zelensky, uh, would you like to see what a Ukrainian Nagasaki looks like? Remembering that it was actually the Americans who dropped first an atomic bomb on Hiroshima, killed more than 100,000 people, and then another bomb on Nagasaki, before the emperor said, okay, I give up, that's enough. Again, in response to this, could you imagine we sort of settle on some stalemate with a monster and then try to live with a monster? Well, I can, but this man's going to be a monster as long as he's the leader of Russia anyhow. Well, he'd be a double monster, but then what am I going to do about it? So, I mean, really, this is the land of the ugly and uglier. And, I mean, you said that you've been trying to help the American team think through some of this. So is it your impression that the Biden administration, is it your impression that they are genuinely concerned by the threat of nuclear escalation? How central is that to their thinking? I think that Joe Biden, whom I've known for probably 50 years, so I know him for a long time and like him, He knows what nuclear war means. He's actually thought through this, even has been through, not recently to the best of my knowledge, but in the past, a simulation in which he basically played one of the parts in the Cuban Missile Crisis, where people were debating choices that Kennedy thought had a one in three chance of having a real nuclear war with 100 million people being killed. So the existential experience of that in terms of what it means emotionally and psychologically, trying to do that vicariously. He's done that. And so have a number of other people in the administration. Millie has gone through something like that. Jake Sullivan. Millie's the head of the Joint Chiefs and Jake is the head of the National Security Council. So they actually have tried vicariously to think about, well, now, wait a minute. If you do this, this could happen. You do this, this is... So why Biden has been so clear from the get-go that we're not going to fight World War III over Ukraine is that you start a conventional World War III U.S. fighting Russians in Ukraine and it escalates to a nuclear war. And at the end of the nuclear war, it's not just Ukrainians have been killed and Russians there, but maybe all Europeans and all Americans and all Russians. 
And you're thinking, no, that's not possible. Well, unfortunately, it is possible. So if the total American arsenal were used to attack Russia, we can kill every last Russian. And we can also, in retaliation, see the U.S. disappear from the map. I mean, literally disappear from the map. No people left. So you think, oh, my God, that's crazy. <laughs> the answer is, it was called, if you can, you're old enough to remember, MAD, Mutual Assured Destruction. And it was meant to be a, a double entendre. Says, MAD, this is MAD. This is madness. This is crazy. I mean, people would end up destroying all of each other, maybe even life on Earth. Which answers, yep. I mean, it's extraordinary. It's mad enough that we built the capacity to do this. Yes. And then the, so the whole idea that you're trying to live in a world in which that's conceivable is hard to take real. And then once it's been 70 years without any use of nuclear weapons, now, okay, I know that was a fantasy. Probably it wasn't real anyhow. In any case, I don't have to think about it. But then all of a sudden, this guy could give us a shocking wake-up call. And I think, unfortunately, the impulse this would have for incentivizing other people to get their own nuclear arsenals for their own uh, protection, however this comes out, I think will be a big blow to the non-proliferation regime, and we'll have to do a lot to try to shore that back up. But, I mean, so you say, and I completely take your word for it, that Biden, Sullivan, and so on, take nuclear escalation as a real threat, factor it centrally into their thinking... And yet, Biden's rhetoric, you're correct, obviously, he said, we're not going to fight World War Three, but he's also accused Putin of genocide, of war crimes. He's essentially called for regime change, which is cutting off all the options of compromise. Doesn't that in itself increase this threat of nuclear escalation? Maybe a bit. Joe Biden is an emotional person. And if one is not genuinely outraged at the outrageous atrocities Putin is perpetrating, you know, you really must have a heart of stone. So uh, now maybe it's not convenient for the president to have an emotional outburst, but uh, that's what he said. I mean, is it true that this fellow is absolutely beyond the pale? Absolutely. And uh, is he genocidal? I believe he is. Uh, And is he a mass murderer? I believe he is. Now, Do I believe that in the end we're going to end up having to do some version of a dirty deal with them, most likely? And it's going to be extremely uncomfortable. We're going to be made less comfortable by saying that he's genocidal, yeah. But end of World War II, Churchill and Roosevelt didn't have any trouble dealing with Stalin. And Stalin had killed 30, 40 million people. Here we are, the 50th anniversary of the opening to China. Kissinger and Nixon didn't have any trouble dealing with Mao. He had probably killed 50 million people. So. I don't think Putin will ever be rehabilitatable. He is a pariah, and he's going to be a pariah for the rest of his period, I believe. But I think that in spite of whatever we've said about him, I think in the end, unless he loses his position, which would be great, but I don't think that's likely, I think that there'll end up being some degree of a settlement in which he will remain a pariah the way Kim Jong-un is. But we're going to have to live with him. And again, looking at the analogies you've drawn with the Cuba Missile Crisis, you said that one of the things that Kennedy decided was that you mustn't humiliate this guy or you mustn't leave him with no options. And yet it does sound a bit like America, at least in public, isn't prepared to countenance the idea of giving him a face-saving device. I mean, Kennedy, you're absolutely right in your reading and memory of the missile crisis. So the missile crisis, Kennedy kind of stumbled into And that's a long story. But then he goes through this experience, the most 
traumatic experience of his life. And it really had a searing impact on him personally and psychologically. It even made him and his brother more reflective than they had ever been. They were both Catholics who meant to be good Catholics. So they thought that they were going to go to the day of judgment in which they had to get a count of their lives. And Bobby said to him, you know, if we had killed 100 million people. It would be a tough interview. Probably there's no forgiveness for that. So he then gave his most important foreign policy speech just five months before he was assassinated. The American University speech is a wonderful speech, brilliant. But he says, here's the lesson from the missile crisis. Nuclear powers must avert confrontations that force an adversary to choose between humiliating retreat and nuclear war. And that was actually part of the crazy cocktail that he concocted for Khrushchev to give him a way out. So I, I think the administration certainly thinking about that. And yes, some of the rhetoric will make it difficult. But I would say the Donbass operation... My bet is it'll go considerably better than the first innings for Russia. And let's imagine the Russian troops succeed in taking Mariupol, which they have, and they then got a land bridge all the way to Crimea. So they push a little further in Donbass. So they got more of Luhansk and more of Donetsk that they had before. And now you've got Ukraine where... Uh, Zelensky's perfectly happy to say they're not joining NATO, and NATO members are prepared to say they're not joining NATO for 15 years or something. Now, can Putin spin that as some version of a victory, you know, in Russia? Well, he's pretty good at spinning pretty strange tales, and so he may be able to say that's enough. And I think from our point of view, Biden has had four objectives, and they've been very clear about them. First objective is that Ukraine survives. Putin wanted Ukraine exterminated. Biden wanted them to survive, they would survive. Secondly, no World War III, no nuclear war. Third, Putin will have had a strategic defeat, a major strategic defeat. Everything that was Putin's objectives, he will have failed on. So his objective was to extinguish Ukraine. Sorry, Ukraine is there. His objective was to splinter or collapse NATO. NATO never looked healthier. His was to divide the West. The West, as you wrote recently, has kind of revived. I've never seen so much life and vigor in the West in terms of response. He's worried about a NATO on his border that's threatening. You're going to see a stronger NATO on his border, you know, than he ever saw before. So he should be dealt, and is being dealt, a major strategic defeat so that anybody looks at the net of it will say, boy, this was crazy. You know, you won 10 and you lost 1,000. So that's a deal that Putin can spin as a victory at home. And we could say, I know Ukrainians don't like this argument, but I've argued that Ukraine was not a successful country before Putin got there. Ukraine has been a mess. Now, part of the mess is because Russians have been fooling around in it or whatever, but there's now more Ukrainian identity than there's ever been. There's more Ukrainian pride than there's ever been. There's more recognition of Ukraine in the world than there's ever been. So anybody that hadn't been moved by the Ukrainians and Zelensky hadn't been watching. So the West is going to be as supportive as we can to the rebuilding of a successful Ukraine. They can build a successful country. And then in the same way that... You ended World War II. We didn't go fight the Soviets in order to liberate East Germany. We settled. And the West became a great success story, and the East became a hellhole. And people looked at the difference, and over time, you know, they drew their own conclusions. North and South Korea. 
I mean, there again, again, with an armistice, South Korea now one of the wonders of the world in the last half century. North Korea is still a mess. So Ukraine could become a... Even if they don't have all the territory like South Korea did, they could become the model country. And then for the guys sitting on the other side, they're going to be looking saying, my God, how did we get stuck on the wrong side of this? But also Russians looking at seeing a successful market democracy on their border that were of people whom they said were Russians, but they seem to be succeeding and we're not. I'm a little hopeful. And last question on this aspect of it. Another thing looking at the Cuba Missile Crisis and your writings and what happened is that there was a secret undertaking by Kennedy to the Russians where he said, I'm not going to say this publicly, but we will take the missiles out of Turkey. Is there any scope for that kind of secret undertaking? Can you imagine? I certainly have written so and think so. And then obviously... It would have to be a secret, and now that government is even more complicated than it was then, it would be difficult to do. But I, in the same way that I think you would not have got the JPCOA, the Iran nuclear deal, if you only had left it to the formal negotiations. So you had a back channel that consisted, interestingly... Of Jake Sullivan uh, and Bill Burns. And Bill Burns. So that's the director of CIA and the national security advisor, both of whom are extremely competent people and both of whom know how to keep a secret. And Burns had been the ambassador to Moscow, so he knows Putin. Uh, He knows Putin well. He's actually gone on a couple of acknowledged missions to Russia just before this. So I don't know exactly what the terms would be, and if I had any thoughts about them, I would obviously try to be quiet about them. But I can imagine something... And Putin is so much about Putin that you could do something for him or his family or somebody that he really cares about. I mean, this is like dealing with a mafiosa. If you go back and look at the Godfather, Godfather, you know, looks after his own children. And it's amazing how often the Godfather comes up in international relations. It is, it is. It is I mean, it's a spectacular book. and it's, I'm sure there's things wrong with it, but I often ask myself, what clues can we get from the Don or from some set of interactions? So that's the two key players at the moment, Russia, the US, but obviously China's crucial. And, you know, you made a big splash a few years back now with your book about the Thucydides trap, which basically argued that uh, rising powers and established powers more often than not went to war and that therefore there must be a risk with China and America. How do you think China is seeing this conflict? After all, Putin met Xi on February the 4th and the invasion happens on February the 24th. So sitting in Beijing, what are they thinking? So U.S.-China relations are the worst that they've been in 50 years. And actually what I wrote in this book, Destined for War, was expect things to get worse before they get worse for one fundamental reason, that when the tectonics of power shift rapidly and dramatically in such a way that a rising power is rising and the seesaw is shifting, and the ruling power is finding where it used to be in control of things, its feet lifting off the ground, this discombobulates the hell out of everything. So the rising power becomes to feel, I'm bigger, I'm stronger, I deserve more say and sway. And the ruling power thinks, 
how can they not be appreciative for the fact that we provide an environment in which they were ever able to grow up? And the structural reality is just happening. I mean, as long as China is continuing to rise, the impact on the seesaw is going to be what it is. And that, I think, is the driver. I'd say that's 75% of the story. And there's 25% more that, I mean, if you didn't have Xi Jinping, if this was another version of who and when, you know, it would be a different story. Xi Jinping, different person altogether with different set of aspirations. Second point, Washington, I think, has done a great job in the intelligence community and done a great job of getting inside uh, Russia and being able to announce what Putin was going to do the week before and keeping him wrong-footed and so forth. The intelligence community and Biden concluded early on that Russia was going to invade. And even though very prominent Russians who should have been involved hadn't figured out the picture— and twice Biden called European leaders and told them it's next Wednesday. So I was talking to the people in the government. I said, this is not going to happen. Not going to happen before February 24th. So I offered four to one bets to everybody. Uh, I collected a lot of money. Why were you so confident it wouldn't be till February 24th? Because the uh, closing ceremony of the Olympics is not till February 24th. And the idea that Putin was going to rain on Xi's parade, no way. Secondly, the question, what position is China going to take? She has built with Russia the most operationally significant alliance in the world today. Way more operationally significant than most of American treaty allies. So if you said the value to China and especially to Russia of their relationship versus U.S. and India, it's not even comparison if you do it operationally. Even though India's a member of the Quad, we call them a non-NATO ally or whatever. So what's going on there? And I think that partly it's what Big Brzezinski's had this idea the last year of his life in 2017, and then I wrote about it in 2018. He called it the alliance of the aggrieved. So the U.S. is isolating both of them. The U.S. is seen by both of them as trying to overthrow their regime. The U.S. doesn't regard their regimes as legitimate. So the enemy, my enemy is a friend. But then, of course, comes the war. And my assumption has been that China would have been fine, would have liked a quick Russian victory. But now it's a terrible mess. So what are they thinking, Beijing? And I should add that I suspect you've got a better idea than, than most, because I remember when the two of us met at a conference in Beijing in 2018. I think your book had just come out, and the Chinese were very intrigued by it. So you know what they think, or how they, how they think. I know some of them. So Wan Kishan, who's the vice president and the closest buddy of uh, Xi's, uh, said to me that, he said, you know, Graham, you're the best publicity agent an author ever had. He said, most people I'd never heard of Thucydides, you know, when you wrote your book about Thucydides, chap. And the idea that there's some guy that was roughly a contemporary of Confucius and that he had a wise insight about pattern in history, which they like. He said, fantastic. He said, his book, Peloponnesian War in Mandarin, has sold more copies since my book than it had in the previous 2,500 years. <laughs> I think they hadn't sold any before then. <laughs> yeah. But in any case, so I would say that this first question, which is, what was the conversation like on February 4th at the summit, the first day of the Olympics? between Putin and she, I brought you a copy of something I produced for folks in the government, and then I published a version of it. I said, let me imagine the briefing chart that's going to be given to she before this meeting. And the first briefing chart is going to say advantages for China if Russia invades. 
in the second chart, disadvantages for China. Yeah, and, and as far as you know, that is exactly how they brief him. Yeah. I think they do. And it's fun as an exercise, you know, intellectually. I mean, all governments do things like that. But doing it for Xi was, was fun. So here it is. So advantages for China if Russia invades. So it's 100 advantages. <laughs> Don't first, give me all 100. First 10. No, no. <laughs> first 10. This is the bottom lines up front. The U.S. will not be focused on us. As the chairman has repeatedly reminded us, what we need most from the U.S. is just one thing, inattention. Fortunately, the U.S. system is unable to focus on more than one major threat at a time. The longer the Russian threat to Ukraine and Europe consumes U.S. attention, the longer breathing space we have to realize our China dream. Now, if I were betting, would he have said, this is not the most convenient time for me because we're doing stability through the coronation in November. This is when Xi's term is extended, so he doesn't need a headache. That's right. He just like to have things calm until then. But I think he said, we understand you're a great power and you'll have to do what you have to do. I don't think he imagined that the Russian military forces would have performed as poorly as they have. And I don't think he imagined that the Ukrainian forces would have performed as well as they have. And I don't think he imagined that the West would have arisen and come down on him. So I think by now he must be thinking, either this guy's a screw-up, and I'm sure he has doubts about him from time to time, but I think he'll still stick with him in the same way that monarchs have always been reluctant about the beheading of other monarchs. You know, the whole idea that this is one of my guys, and if he can be overturned, you know, what about me? But I have to be thinking, what about the military capability of them? Though I would suspect he thinks that the first round didn't work out very well and that he's looking for a better performance in Donbass. Do you think it'll make them think a bit harder about the possibility of attacking Taiwan? I hope, I hope. I mean, we always imagine what, what they should be seeing or what they should be saying, and I would prefer to be listening to see what I could hear. But you can't not watch this and say... Well, certainly the Russian military is underperformed, so it may be that a complex military operation is complicated. And if you haven't been practicing it lately, you can't be confident how it's going to go. And I believe that's true. So since Chinese military, like almost all militaries, is conservative, they have a good reason to practice more. So for me, delay is success. So then secondly, we got a bunch of Russian weapons. These weapons don't seem to be performing as well as we think. Chinese are great students of ongoing wars. So I'm sure they're looking at this and thinking, if the problem is they didn't maintain the stuff, or maybe there's some fundamental problems with the equipment. But in any case, since that's a lot of it's our equipment, we got to reconsider this. So again, that's a good reason for delay. And then I think the Western response, a huge amount of the Chinese governing class are global people. So they go to Davos or they go to London to see the park or they go shopping in New York or Paris and they're sending their kids to school in England or Indeed, in Harvard. the U.S. Didn't see his daughter. Some even to Harvard. And so the idea that you might be basically blackballed or become a pariah has got to be shocking them. And I've had probably 10 discussions with people even now with Zoom, you know, in which you could listen what they're saying, but you could hear between the lines the thought that this couldn't happen to Chinese too, could it? Or to Chinese that are part of the ruling class. Because now, for Putinistas, you know, the oligarchs and the other, you know, people that you and I were friends with. We'll never see them again <laughs> at this rate. So very last question. We talked about how the Chinese will be seeing this. 
The US, before all this war broke out, I mean, the one consistent thread, it seemed to me, between Trump and Biden and even Obama was attempt to refocus American foreign policy on China to say, look, Russia's yesterday's problem. Do you think that can survive this conflict? It's uh, a great question. And uh, my former student and colleague, Kurt Campbell, is the you know czar trying to do this. He's Mr. Pivot to Asia in the White House. Exactly. And I go there almost every week and have been trying to help them a bit. I think they're appropriately terrified that uh, if you look, uh, the China strategy for the administration, which actually has been ready, I don't know, three times for the last more than half a year, every time they get ready to give a speech about it or say what it is, and he said, oh, no, you have to take account of this. So if you're giving a speech about China today, the president or the secretary of state, it's got to start with Ukraine. And then Ukraine and Russia, and then Ukraine and Russia and China. And I think it's also the case that in most outcomes of Ukraine, Russia will still look like a militarily threatening force to many Europeans. And Europeans are finally, many of them, waking up about, you know, maybe we can even be serious about our own defense. And so, again, from the American point of view, most Americans are more Europeanists than they are Asians. U.S. has a huge install base of Europeanists and very few people that know very much about Asia. That's one of the weaknesses in trying to rebalance, uh, just in terms of the competence in the State Department or the Defense Department or the intelligence community. And the Army has a much clearer role in Europe than it does in Asia. So I think that the right thing to say is the U.S. is a global power and we can walk and chew gum at the same time. We can even multitask. We can't not be interested in what happens in the Middle East. So the most urgent problem today is Russia and Europe, but the most significant problem over the next generation is China. And we have to find a way to do more than one thing at the same time. That was Professor Graham Allison ending this edition of the Rackman Review. Thanks for listening, and please join me again next week. Here at Bellingcat, we get to the bottom of things. From a global crisis to an underreported event, we find the facts using publicly available tools and resources uncovering what is hidden on and below the surface. We connect the dots using social media posts, satellite images, and public records, and empower others to do the same by sharing how we do it. The ability to do so is only made possible by our readers, supporters, and community members. Care to join us? Learn how at bellingcat.com.